A reading from the New Testament, Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen." to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray together. Oh God, we pray you would open the eyes of our heart that we would know the hope to which you've called us, what are uh, the riches of your glorious inheritance and your people in the immeasurable power for those that believe. In Christ's name, amen. So a few weeks ago, I was looking into using or purchasing an online service and I wanted to verify it, right? And so I typed in, is so-and-so legit? And even before I did that, I could see that it had been searched a bunch of times, right? Because this is a regular question that people have. We want to know, is this thing that I'm going to entrust myself to, is it credible? Is it legitimate? Can I invest in it? Now, put your mind, uh, put yourself, rather, in the mind's of the early disciples and the apostles, okay? Now, they had come to experience and believe that Jesus Christ was nothing less than God who came to earth. God that came to earth. Do you think that they wanted to get that right as they shared the message? Something that big, something that important, was important to them that it be credible 
as they share it with the world. The very one that would come thousands of years of promise, God's Messiah King, and enter the darkness and the brokenness and the pain and the sin of this world. We're reminded today, even right with 9-11, this is the world we live in, that he would enter into that day and give a foretaste of healing, but more so his death and resurrection would be the catalyst, the catalyst for it to happen, for this healing to happen. If you were in that founding group, would you place importance on that message, getting right and getting out? But as we saw last week, one of the biggest hurdles they had was their own doubt. Contrary to what's often thought by modern people, and that is that primitives are people that just wanted to believe in a myth. And that was the disciples. They were just looking to believe in a myth and a legend. When you read the account, you find it's actually the opposite. Jesus spends 40 days seeking to persuade them that he indeed was alive. Luke told us last week, 40 days giving them many proofs so that they might believe. I mentioned last week, I'll mention again, if you're someone that struggles with doubt, don't feel alone. And so, why would Jesus go to that effort? Why would he see it as necessary? Well, one, they weren't any more inclined to believe a risen Jewish Savior than you and I are. Number two, as messengers, they would suffer and most of them would be martyred. But number three, they would be the way for the rest of us to know him. They would be the way for the world to know him. He had to make sure they had conviction and they believed and understood. He had tied the credibility of the gospel to their credibility. I know. Sometimes I, you know, I just kind of gasp at the agency and dignity and importance that God entrusts to us, to people. And so this mission to redeem and restore and form one new people, which we're studying in the book of Acts, rest upon the credibility of the witness. And I want to just take a little time this evening to look at that. The credibility of the witness and the significance of the witness. And this is fitting as well for our dear brother, Will, not to put you on the spot, but, right, talking about leaders here. And we've got a, we've got a lot of uh, preacher leaders in the room. I've spotted a few of them, and uh, they're here for this service. Uh, so Welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Now, one thing that you hear more and more about is the decline, the erosion of social trust in America. That there has been, and I, and I don't think it's just like talk. I've been around long enough. I've been in the city for now 20 years, and I would say, yeah, I've seen a change, right? in mutual trust, social trust. 
You have the financial collapse of 2008. You have church leaders who cover up abuse. Video of police that were using their authority in abusive ways. An insurrection. The list goes on and on and on. A decline in social trust. And while all of us have felt it, those that have been marginalized, African Americans and the working poor, and young adults are the ones that feel it the most. If the polls we take or any indication suffer it the most. How do you restore that sort of trust and credibility? If I had the answer to that, right? But I was thinking back to seminary when they were teaching us to preach. And uh, maybe you'd be like, you actually took a class, Glenn, in preaching? Because I was wondering uh, if you had any, any training. I did have some training. But in there, uh, there were three things they were borrowing from Aristotle. It said three things have to be present when you're preaching. Logos, that's the logical content, right? That's the stuff. Pathos, that's the emotion that's appropriate to the content. And then ethos, that's the character and integrity. All of that has to be there for us to say, yeah, I'm going to trust this. I'm going to believe in it. And you find all of it with the early witnesses that we're reading about here. Right? Let me, let me just sort of go through that quickly. First of all, you see that there's a concern for actually the content, the events, that they're true, that they're reliable. Luke, who is the author of uh, a gospel and this work, Acts, two-volume work, he starts his two volumes off with this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. By that, he's referring to probably the other gospels. So he's saying they were at the point, this is about 30 years after Jesus has ascended, where they're realizing, we, we've got to codify this stuff. We've got to actually write it down. And there were others that were doing it. So the, the Bible puts a big stress on multiple witnesses. If you've got multiple witnesses, it's going to be a much better chance of credibility. And as an aside note, when you look at ancient documents, the New Testament has over 5,000 partial and full manuscripts. That's a lot of witnesses. It's a good thing. That God has given us those things. Luke was a physician. He was a scientist of his day. And so we're not surprised that he said, as he did that, he followed up all things closely. He did his own personal research, and then he compared, and he investigated. And his goal, he tells us, was so that those that read, that's you and me now, would have certainty, certainty, confidence, that they weren't telling tales. In the core of this were eyewitnesses. Those that had been with Jesus. In fact, we find this emphasis in our passage, don't we? When it comes for them to replace Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, this is the requirement. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they're saying someone going all the way back to John the Baptist 
right? That's at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, someone going all the way back there, someone that was with us through the ministry, someone with us that was witness to the suffering that Christ had died and Christ had risen and ascended. That's who we need. We need an eyewitness. And that's because, you know, the 12 had a unique responsibility. A unique responsibility. In fact, as they died, one of the things you notice in the Bible, they're not replaced and voted in with other people. Because so much was upon them being eyewitnesses to what they had seen before. Now, one of the objections that comes up, yeah, but it also says there were ministers of the word. They believed in this stuff. Doesn't that make them? They weren't neutral. And that's because we have this idea, right, that if you're a fan of something, you can't tell the truth. So, I've used this analogy once before, but, you know, you guys probably don't remember it. So, I'm married into a Crimson Tide family, Alabama football, which has actually been encouraging because when you're a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, you need a little <laughs> up and down, right? You know, so, so, I watched the game yesterday, so I am a fan. I'm a fan, and I'm going to tell you that yesterday... The way the game unrolled in the last minutes was Alabama was ahead by one point, and then Texas went down and kicked a 49-year-old, a 49-year-old field goal. <laughs> I'm not even going to say anything on that. Field goal. And then they went ahead by one point, and then Alabama went back down the field, and then they kicked a field goal, and Alabama won. Now, do you believe me? I'm telling the truth. You can verify it. I'm a fan, but I'm still telling the truth. Listen, yeah, we got to be aware of our biases, but let's just drop the idea that someone, because they're vested in something, can't be integrable. Or we would believe nothing, right? And so we see this idea of logos. And uh, one, one thing to just keep in mind as well, this is just 30 years later. There were a bunch of people that had been alive when Jesus was alive. A bunch of people saw everything. Do we really think that this movement would have progressed? It would have progressed if it was built deliberately on lies and falsehoods. It doesn't make sense. But more quickly, there was also an emotional, an ethos, a pathos, and an ethos. We're told that they were together praying with one accord. If you've ever prayed, you know, for it to be effective, there's got to be some humility, right? There's got to be some openness, especially in corporate prayer. You're dependent upon God, but you're also opening up to one another. You're receiving from one another. We're told in the room there were the apostles there. There were the women leaders. Mary was there and the women that had been with Jesus throughout his ministry that actually were there seeing the cross and were the first witnesses of his resurrection. They're present. And then a bunch of other people. And they're in one accord together. They're praying. There's an emotional coherency there that they're experiencing. And while there was casting of lots, which had some precedent in the Old Testament, you don't find that after this, after the Holy Spirit's given. And likely it was just to confirm how they already felt led. They had landed on two people. They weren't just randomly grabbing folks. But lastly, and maybe most importantly for our day, transparency. 
transparency, ethos and character. After Jesus ascends, there could have been a major power grab. These guys were capable of it. If you read the Gospels at all, you know they were arguing about who's the greatest. James and John actually said, when you come into your kingdom, can we be on the right and left of the throne? There could have been a big power grab that happens. Anytime leadership transition happens, right, we see this. Yet all of it is done before the community and the body. It's done before the company of the 120. It's done according to Scripture and the things that Jesus has said. The culture of this early church we're seeing in the passage was a culture that was committed to credibility. Because, you know, you may have thought as we were reading, having this passage read, like, why even have this in the Bible? And why, why spend time reading about leadership transition? Because they wanted you and I to know that it was a credible testimony that was being passed along. That we have grounds to have confidence, to know for certainty that Jesus lived, died, rose, and ascended. But let's move the significance of the witness. Jesus spends, right, over 40 days convincing them that he's alive, but it wasn't just, his goal wasn't just that they would be able to recount the events of it. He spends those 40 days so they understand the meaning of it. The meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the whole point. That's where the life is. That's where the grace is, right? That's what we hope for our children, that maybe right now they're hearing facts, but it dawns on them. And I've seen this with my own kids, these aha moments. We're like, oh, that was the meaning of that. And Jesus empowered the 12, not just to know it, but to speak it. They were authoritative teachers of the word. They had this unique role where he would give his spirit so that they could convey the meaning of it to the world. And let me mention two things. And Christ is at the center of it all. Paul, who was a later witness, would say that he preached Christ and him crucified. By that, he wasn't saying, I just preached the bare facts, or I just only... He was saying... Everything about the Christian faith flows out of who Jesus is and what he has done. All the theology makes sense there. And there are two things I think here we see about the significance. The first thing is the significance of reconciliation with God. The credibility of the message is this today, my friends. You can know for certain that you can be reconciled with God. And I know there might be relationships in your life you're not reconciled to, they make you feel uneasy, but if you are not confident you're reconciled with the Creator, the one who made you, you will never be easy. You will never be at peace. 
And this is not a faith that leaves it wondering, is there a God and what, what am I in store for when I see? Or man, I hope I can work well enough whereby I can sort of work my way. This is the one where God comes and reconciles you to, to him. How do we see this? There's a good portion of this text reflecting on Jesus, or rather Judas. And you have to, we have to step back here and realize a lot had happened in their circle, but you have to believe that they are still trying to process. What? How did that happen? Peter mentions he was numbered among us and was allotted in his share. He was part of the inner 12. I mean, for three years, they lived together. They ate together. They laughed together. They were in conflict together. They were on mission together. They were relying on, you know, they had each other's back. They were speaking late at night around the fire. Everyone was surprised when this happened. There are few things worse in life than betrayal, right? Other things can happen outside of you, but betrayal means I let somebody in to that inner place of my life, and they transgressed. You know? They're processing. Peter is helping them process that. We later learn in some of the Gospels that this just didn't happen overnight, that Judas for some time had been robbing the till. You know, his heart at some point was infiltrated uh, by evil and sin. But there are two things that Peter reflects on, and they have to do with this idea of setting up reconciliation. First of all, he mentions that God was sovereign even over that, right? This is what he mentions when he talks about the Scripture, that God knew what was happening and that he was overriding even Judas's evil to bring about his purpose. The book of Acts will say, Peter will say next week in his sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The same thing is true for you and I. You know, I, I don't know where in your life you need to be reminded, but if you've, if you've experienced betrayal, at some point, a great comfort is this idea that God you saw it, and you even have orchestrated it, that I wouldn't get crushed by it. That you could, even, you could even override those events, and it may take you a long lifetime. Go to the book of Genesis with Joseph, decades, for him to say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good in my life. But also there's this theme of God's judgment of sin. Peter applies Psalm 109. It's a very sad and sobering passage, this stuff. As best we know, Judas experienced remorse and regret, but not real repentance. We're told about the judgment that happens just in his own, and it's here we're not saying that suicide, his suicide makes him liable to judgment. That's not the point here. But he commits suicide, he dies in a horrific way. It's known, it becomes part of the community story. It even touches the land they're in. Right? There's this idea of judgment that comes. Now, I got to believe that there's one person in that room that realizes 
he was pretty close to that line. And it's the one who's speaking. It's Peter. Right? If you know the story of the Gospels, Peter denies Jesus. And yet, he repents. Jesus restores Peter and says, after you've repented, I want you to go strengthen your brothers. This is what's happening right now. This is the first time we see Peter as a leader among equals. He stands out. He's repented, and now he's leading. So in the backdrop of this judgment that could befall any of us, a judgment that any of us, because who of us can say that we've been faithful in all our relationships or faithful to God? Who of us can say that we haven't, those of us that are professing Christians, we haven't gotten afraid and kept our mouths shut when we could have spoken about the way God has transformed our lives? Right? Who of us? We could go down here again and again and again. Listen, for you to have a sense that judgment is a real thing and that you're liable to it is not being a downer. It's not being primitive. It's being humble. It's being humble. I mean, good night, right? We live in a culture where we're constantly judging our neighbor. We're very quick to assert our rights, very quick to say this person ought to be condemned. You can just spend, you know, one minute online. And yet somehow when it comes to God, we think, well, that, that's absurd. You and I must have a sense, but for the grace of God, that is me. But in Peter, we see the mercy of God, don't we? We see the reconciliation of God. We see Jesus standing with Peter or sitting with him and saying, do you love me? And him restoring. And this is what I think is significance about this. One of the signs you can tell that you've really believed that God has reconciled himself to you, that you believe that you've received his mercy and grace, is when you believe that you can be useful again. That he, that he will use me in significant ways. Imagine that step where Peter was sitting there. Maybe there was some off the line, you know, leadership, but then he's like, I gotta believe there may have been some people in that room going, you? Like, hey man, you're on probation at least for a year. I mean, you're going to stand up and lead us? But that's the reconciliation of God. It's like the prodigal father who doesn't put the son on probation. He just receives him. A sign that you are receiving God's grace is that you will be useful to God. And so, as we wind it down, we talk about reconciliation but along with Peter, you have to, we have to say just a word about restoration. Now, why 12 apostles? Why 12? How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. Jesus must, Jesus must be doing something here. Why couldn't they just go with 11? Because the 12 were symbolic of what was and what will be. They were a hinge 
turning back that God had always been at work with his gracious promises. Jesus said that a Samaritan woman's salvation has come from the Jews. God mediated this gospel. His plan was always to start with one nation, start with one people, and then spread it out and fan it out. And that's what you see. So the 12 reach back and they remind you and I, especially if you're a Gentile here, if you're someone that is uh, not Jewish, someone that has come to know the Christian faith, Paul reminds, listen, you were grafted in. The church should always have high respect for God's people Israel, and that's why the scriptures of the Old Testament are something that we treasure and need to read. Right? It's the tail on the kite. Grafted into the tree. But God's plan for there to be more with Israel is also seen. We saw it last week when Jesus said, I want you to go into the world. The Christian faith stands out among the other two monotheist religion in that it's always been translated from the beginning, the scriptures, because God always intended for it to be translated, to go to nations. And next week we'll see it when we look at Pentecost. So there's this idea, right, that this one new people flowing will be a broader and even more beautiful new Israel. And so there had to be 12 because it's important to Jesus that we would know this is where we were and this is where we're going. I will fulfill this all-nation, pan-ethnic bride, cross-cultural people. But not just the composition is the restoration, it's also in the character of who they would be. And we touched on this last week. The book of Romans, Paul says, you have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. This community was to be the character of Jesus living. As they went off, as they scoured the globe, they would be, people would be, Jesus said, people will look at you and go, these are my disciples because I see love. I see peace. I see patience. I see gentleness. I see kindness. The fruit of the Spirit is a big deal, my friends. And we need to get in each other's faces at times and say, hey, man, the way you're representing Christ grieves my heart. I mean, the way I see Christians speak online at times, I'm just like, it is a big deal. Because it has everything to do with the message, right? The restored Israel means a community that's restored in the character and image of Jesus. Our witness must be credible. God has done the first part. He's given us this great uh, tradition of credibility where we can know for certain he came, he rose, he lives, he reigns. But you know something? The story is very much being written of the restoration. We're part of this. Do you know that you are fulfilled prophecy? Jesus said, I have sheep other than this fold. I will build my church. It will spread out of Jerusalem, Judea. It will go. This is fulfilled prophecy. And he continues with the story. This is the vision we have. Let's pray.
God, we're uh, so grateful for our forebearers, uh, how uh, careful they were in the charge that they'd given, and that they dispensed it faithfully unto death. And for your loving sovereign hand that has preserved the witness all around the world, even till today, 2022, Washington, D.C. And we thank you that you still raise up leaders with logos, pathos, and ethos. And you raise up congregations and people that have the aroma of Christ. One new people, Lord, let us be a witness in this city. Would you give us that honor? Would you give us that grace? We want to be used of you powerfully that Jesus would be famous in our city.